Hey guys, welcome to the Physio and Fitness Podcast. I'm here today with Glenn Robbins and Tom Goom. I'm very excited to have Tom Goom on the podcast because we're talking a lot of running topics today and also lots of topics around mental health and how running relates to mental health. So that should be a really fascinating talk. We've also got Glenn here and obviously we've we've talked to Glenn on the podcast before, so you all know his story. And if you if you if you don't, then go back and listen to our previous couple of episodes and you can hear all about Glenn. So um Tom, maybe if you want to give a little bit of a background for for those i'm sure lots of people who listen to the podcast will know who you are but if, if people don't then if you just give a little brief intro into yourself and then we'll go from there sure thank you um yeah no i know obviously today we're we're talking about mental health um and actually um what got me into um you know running and specializing in running was mental health my, i ran a marathon uh, over a decade ago now for the mental health foundation uh, because I've, you know, I've always thought mental health is really important, and I've struggled myself with my own mental well-being, you know, with anxiety and OCD. So, I, I trained for that that marathon, and at that point, I, I encountered lots of injuries, as many marathon runners do. And I went and looked into, you know, the the evidence behind treating it, and tried to find good advice out there for runners, and there wasn't any uh, that I could find good quality advice, at least on the internet. So. That's where I really started specializing in running injury management, researching all the key running injuries that we see, um, trying to put together a website, running physio, um, to, to share that information with runners. And really, ever since then, I've specialized in uh, the management and, and treatment of running injury. Uh, so as you say, I still treat lots of runners, but also teach lots of clinicians about it as well. And what, what sort of, obviously, you mentioned your, your struggles that you had yourself. What do you think... Um, it is about running that, you know, lends itself to helping with that sort of thing. What do you think draws runners, you know, or draws people into running for those benefits, you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's simple stuff like the runner's high that you you get after a run. You do feel better for it. You get that big kick of endorphins. And I think generally exercising outside is quite good for our brain chemistry and how we feel. Um, I think it's good for your self-esteem and it's good socially too. If, if you can try and combine running with the social aspects of it, like, you know, going to a park run, joining a running club, having friends that, that run with you, um, you know, those types of things can all be really, really good for your well-being. So I think there's a lot of positives with it. Um, and hopefully as we talk through this podcast, we'll talk about other aspects as well. Cause I think sometimes there's this idea that you, you know, you just do a bit of exercise and that sorts everything out. But I think there's, there's more to it than that. I think there are other things that we can often add to it exercise that can really help us uh, with our mental well-being yeah and I think Glenn you were saying to me the other day about you'd been looking into the runner's high a bit more because you'd found yourself that you'd been doing some running and you'd had some positive experiences with that and, uh, and again I might mention my own as well after this but um so you know maybe can you talk a little bit about that in terms of what you've been reading about yeah, so I've been um, I've been teaching courses similar to Tom for about eight years now, but I've never actually been an avid runner, which is, I know Tom's been an avid runner for many years, um, but I've always trained about 15 hours a week in some capacity. So mixed martial arts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, weight training. And I think a lot of people that do train a lot um, are using it as some kind of self-medication, right? To help with stress of day-to-day life, any issues with, um, I always sleep better. I'm just a nicer person to be around when I am exercising regularly. Um, and then along came uh, lockdown, you know, and um, I'd done a bit of running as part of my rehab for my knee injuries. And I was kind of ticking along with one, you know, 5k run a week or something. But um, with the lockdown, I was left with home exercise routines, um, which, you know, are great. Um, but I wasn't getting the same buzz as I was from doing a, a heavy uh, weight session in a gym or doing like an intense uh, martial arts session so I started to put a bit more focus into running and um, yeah like I was I was um, shocked actually at the the amount of um, relaxation that I got the kind of runner's high that people talk about and the knock-on effect that had to help me deal with stressful situation of you know closing my clinic being stuck at home having to homeschool two young kids um, pregnant wife as well so um, uh, a few challenges thrown in quick succession and um, and running was a real nice tool to help to kind of deal with that. So, yeah, I, I was a bit more interested in that as opposed to just the performance side of it and getting people through injuries and look more at the psychological, which I've been aware of for a while through my client base. Um, but to experience it firsthand was was um, is, is always beneficial, right? 
Yeah, and I guess this is both of you, but have you, have either of you two, um, sort of seen any specific research or any papers on on like the physiological, like what is actually happening? Do you think, or what physiologically, what do you think is going on? That that is there. That you know, obviously we talk about hormonal endorphin release, etc. But what do you know, physic physiologically, what is actually happening with runners? Maybe if we shoot this over to you, Tom, and then we'll come back to you, Glenn. Yeah, um, honest answer is um, I've not I've not read in depth about the kind of like physiology, uh, you know, in terms of brain response to to exercise and running. Um, but um, you know, generally the the things I've looked into talk about you know exercise outside, even being in like green spaces or blue spaces, you know, like by the sea, um, and generally exercise. Um, it, it does seem to improve our mood and well-being, and we think it might be due to things like release of um, endorphins and endogenous opioids. But I must admit, I'm certainly not an expert in the the brain physiology side of it. Yeah, I think I think it's just an interesting one because it's it's one of those where I was saying before the the call started that I um, used to do quite more weights type activities, although I played hockey as as a you know. Um, as a youngster and then now i am you know i've done a lot more weights for a while and and since doing some running myself i realized it's a really different feeling like it just doesn't feel quite the same as when you do a weight session like a weight session feels i used to i used to enjoy weights and i used to feel good doing it but i think it doesn't give you that same psychological kind of um release in a way it's a strange i don't know how to exactly describe that but it i think you know it doesn't give you the same feeling, does it? That, that a weight session then might give you. No, I mean, I, I, I get a comparable feeling from the martial arts. Yeah, and I'm sure you, you must have with the boxing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, a bit more intense. And I think they've, they have shown that the runner's high seems to be um, much more emphasized with running as opposed to other CV training as well, you know, like cycling and, and, and those kind of activities. Um, I had a little read around just because I was so fascinated with the effects I was experiencing myself. And there is um, lots of proposed mechanisms. Um, a lot of the kind of brain physiology stuff that we were talking about has been shown more in animals, so more in like rats and stuff about increased availability of serotonin and dopamine and stuff like that. Um, I did see a, this again, just from my own experience, I did see an interesting um, hypothesis that um, increasing the core temperature and keeping it elevated for a period of time has a, a positive effect on um, the brainstem and making you feel more relaxed and relaxing your muscles. And just weirdly, I love running uh, in the heat. So during the, the hot summer that we had during the, the lockdown, I was really enjoying like getting really hot and sweating. <laughs> that could be coming back to my jujitsu background. Um, <laughs> and then there's, there's other sides. I think like Tom's touched on it as well about the community side of it. I mean, even if you're not running with people, um, being involved with stuff like Strava makes you feel like you're part of a community. Um, I think there's obviously not to be underestimated the kind of self-efficacy kind of thing. So, you know, feeling when you're, when you're doing something that's challenging and you're improving at it and you're making good gains and you're doing something that's difficult and you're persevering and, and sticking with it, then that can have a knock-on effect psychologically. And um, there's also, you know, distraction. So getting a bit of time away from a stressful situation and just having a bit of time to yourself and escaping from, um, your day-to-day -day is, is, you know, I think is a, a mechanism as well. It's probably a combination of all of these things, right? So Yeah, yeah. And Tom, Tom you, met, you mentioned before, and if obviously, you know, if you don't mind talking about the anxiety that you had yourself, um, how do you feel that, like, do you did it was running very much a, a treatment that you were using for that like how did you go about thinking about that and you know do you, do you find a lot of your patients do the same sort of thing are they using that to help with their mental health yeah absolutely and and i think it can be very very positive uh, but it can be a problem if people have to stop running because of injury if they're very reliant upon running as a coping strategy and then that goes it, it can leave them at crisis point unfortunately with their mental well-being and i've worked with quite a few people that have said that it's not so much the pain of the injury it's the impact that, that not running is having on them personally so i think we we really need to try and recognize that as um, clinicians um, I, I've used exercise to, to help with my um, anxiety and it does help definitely. Uh, but I've also learned that there's, there's other aspects of managing mental wellbeing. And 
the way I see it, sort of, you know, this is just sort of personal perspective, really, but it ties in with how we might treat injuries. Is I suspect there's probably kind of a biopsychosocial uh, sort of model with with mental health as well. So it might be that running can help some of the biological aspects. You know, that you're going to be helping your brain chemistry. You're going to get those, you know, increase in serotonin and and things. So it can help the biological state of your brain, and that's a good thing. But if your social situation is very challenging or very, very stressful or you're very, very isolated, um, then that, you know, that isn't necessarily going to fix that on its own. Um, And your psychological situation in terms of how you think and, and your habits in terms of thinking if you ruminate, if you get very drawn into negative thinking and, and negative thinking spirals, again, just going for a run, I don't think necessarily is going to address that. So I think certainly for people with more, you know, moderate to severe mental well-being, you know, mental health uh, concerns, you know, they're going to benefit from exercise, but they may want to look at those other aspects as well. You know, can they, can they improve their social situation and get a better social support around them and perhaps include seeing a mental health professionals part of of that you know can they look at their thought processes and learn about uh, about how they can try and change that perhaps you know developing tools like mindfulness and things like that so i think there's a bigger picture exercise can definitely help but my personal experiences on its own it, it wasn't enough for me i think i felt i needed more yeah and i think sometimes it's difficult as you know in the past especially for a lot of men to talk about these sorts of subjects and hopefully by us talking about it today and on and and lots of other people obviously talking about it now and it's much more out there in the ether in terms of mental health issues and and how you know much of an effect they can be um more people will feel you know uh, happy to come forwards and talk about these things i think um you know, the thing that I, I went through some, um, or a period of, of, I think I've had a level of anxiety, probably my entire life, particularly social anxiety, which actually to my friends is quite a, um, a bode of a almost co- comedic value because, uh, they just, you know, would take the, the Mickey a little bit when, um, in new situations, cause I would panic a little bit, but, um, but I, I went through a period a few years ago where I really struggled and, um, and went to the GP. And I think that's what, what I was going to say is that in order to get those, um, you know, to go down that maybe CBT route about the psychological or to address some of the social issues, I think for a lot of people out there, if you are struggling, just go to your GP because it actually really helped me. And I think a lot of people will probably find just by going to the GP and actually speaking to them about it, that helped, that helped me straight away just because I felt like I was doing something about it. I felt like I was kind of, you know, progressing forwards in some way. I don't know exactly. Again, it's hard for me to explain because it was a couple of years ago now, but but definitely I remember speaking to my wife, like literally straight after the appointment, because she kind of said to me, look, you know, I think you do need to seek some help. And I kind of said, yeah, um, went along and straight away, I'd felt a little bit better and it ended up being, I went for um, some counseling sessions for, about six weeks or so and it not, nothing completely groundbreaking but just helped me in that moment to get to the point where I was then able to kind of manage things and now it's just loads better for various different reasons personal reasons which I won't bore, bore everyone with or go into but but you know I think it's that first initial reaching out and then like you say almost in trying to to deal with all of those things mental health wise not just obviously the physical um and i wonder sometimes whether it's that you know that's why with runners there is that um reluctance to stop stop training because it's kind of that that feeling of they're hanging on to that one thing that kind of makes them feel better i don't know what what you guys think maybe if we come to you then in terms of what what you know what you obviously you both you and thomas see lots of runners so why do you think there is that propensity for them to run through pain i guess is the question yeah, I think it's a, a couple of factors, really. I mean, a, a lot of runners that run regularly will regularly be in pain anyway. So it's kind of, um, if you're training for a marathon, for example, it's normal to have aches and pains, and it's something that they're used to to working through and with um, before it becomes a, a injury that stops them running. Uh, similar to like dancers in that respect, you know, there's certain sports, same with my martial art guys. If you try and pick a day where they're not having any kind of aches or pains, it's hard to hard to do when they're in full flight of training. Um, so it's a, a bit of a habit, you know, it's very easy to um, continue to run, particularly if it doesn't come on for a period of time and they can run to a certain level. And um, you see a similar pattern there where 
you know, oh, it takes me 4K before my pain comes on and they'll just continually run six, seven and push into it as opposed to, you know, maybe still running, but keeping below that threshold. Um, and then from the mental side of things, like, like, you, um, like you mentioned, if that is their go-to um, coping strategy, um, then it is very difficult to let it go, isn't it? I mean, it's, if, you, mm. if you think that they're kind of, you could term it as a self-medicating in a way, um, telling them to take that out completely. You have to be quite mindful when you do that, you know, particularly if they do have a history of, of uh, mental health issues and it's something that they've used as a, as a, a useful tool for, for dealing with that. So um, I always do mention that, you know, you wouldn't be so quick to tell someone to stop taking antidepressive medications, you know, so um, it shouldn't be a, a recipe that every injured runner that comes through your door, they have to stop running, you know, you have to base it on obviously some you, you, you will, um, but you shouldn't have that kind of recipe approach to right. Okay. You're injured. So stop running because there are these effects that go, you know, above and beyond their, their injury that they're presenting, um, with. Yeah, yeah definitely. And it's it's that- a risk versus reward process, uh, uh, isn't it? So, you know, the, the risks of continuing running in terms of maybe flaring up a, an injury, but also the risks of stopping. And we don't tend to think of the, the risks of stopping, but there can be lots of negative impacts um, of stopping sport on people, you know, their mental well-being, their, their social life can revolve around it, their fitness. So I think we, we need to sort of look at that bigger picture, don't we, with the runner, if they are injured and they're using running to manage their mental well-being, are we maybe a little bit more inclined to say, okay, well, let's see if we can keep things going at least at, at a level that you can cope with for the moment and for lots of runners you can do that anyway i think if you if you modify their training a little bit but then we look at other aspects of the kind of biopsychosocial stuff i touched upon so can we help them find other coping strategies can we help them work with a counselor to look at some of their thought patterns to to help them develop social support so that they're not reliant upon running and actually sometimes an injury can be an opportunity for someone to learn new coping strategies new new ways to to manage their mental well-being um, so that you know should they get injured again which most of us runners do they'll be able to cope a lot better and are there certain things that that um runners could do to minimize their risk of running do you think tom or or what sort of things do you encounter with patients that come in to see you running wise that that um you would tend to tell people to sort of avoid or start doing um, in terms of minimizing their risk of, of injury or flare up, you mean? Yeah, of flaring up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, I think the first port of call is to give them some guidance around what pain is acceptable and uh, indeed expected. Um, you know, so, some research suggests maybe as much as, you know, 80% of runners will be carrying some niggle or ache or pain. So, so it, it, you know, similar to what Glenn was saying, it's very common for people to have some symptoms. So what is okay? And so that would usually be to say, well, mild pain during a run, you know, if you're scoring it out of 10, maybe up to about three or four is okay. It's quite normal, uh, providing it settles quickly afterwards and it isn't noticeably worse the next day. I think that's the general general guidance um, I would give to people um, so then we can say well let, let's talk about your running a bit you know how much can you do that feels manageable what sort of distance can you manage what's a manageable intensity and manageable frequency what are the sessions that actually lead to a lasting flare-up in your symptoms because those are the ones we might want to modify or, or, or take out just for a short time um, we can look at other ways as well to boost mental and physical well-being so cross training could be an alternative you know if you if you're getting quite a lot pain from running but you can tolerate um some bike work can we get you to do some bike work can we get you to do outside in a nice in a nice place that you find relaxing so we look to kind of really you know maximize the opportunities we have for you know getting pain at a manageable level keeping fit keeping mentally well through other ways i think and are there ways of that you typically you know when you get a runner in tom that that you maybe you're suspecting some, some, you know, some of these other things to be playing a big role. So I guess maybe for some, you know, cause lots of physios will listen to this podcast. So maybe how would you go about um, sort of, well, how would you know that someone was having maybe some of these other issues, not just the biological, what are the kind of key things you're looking out for in an assessment, maybe where you're thinking, okay, there's other things going on with them. And then what, where are the sorts of things or how would you signpost those people to sort of help, with those other sorts of things, if that makes sense. And I we touched on it a little bit earlier, but. 
Yeah, um, sometimes runners will just straight up tell you that they run for their mental well-being. Um, but I think it's quite good generally when you're going through your past medical history to, to you know, ask them about any of the past medical history, ask them how their mood and mental well-being is, give them the opportunity to tell you, actually, you know, I'm really, really stressed at the moment and I, I tend to use running to help that. Um, you can ask more general questions too, like, you know, why, why is running important to you? Um, what happens to you if you can't run or what are the kind of negative effects it has because then you can look to net less than those effects and that's quite often when they say well my family gets sick of me pretty quickly if i can't run because i'm really grumpy and i'm really irritable and i'm really stressed so you there's ways to kind of explore it and i would encourage most people listening to try and explore some of these aspects with with you runners we we're not counselors we don't have to go into lots of details but just a couple of questions around mental well-being and mood and the impact of stopping running can be quite revealing um, and then once you've identified that that's an issue, then we need to think about what our scope of practice is, because as I said, I'm not a counsellor. So I, you know, I, I don't want to be um, offering advice I'm not qualified to offer. So we work with local counsellors um, here in Brighton that we might say, you know, um, have a chat to, to, to one of our, uh, you know, friends and colleagues that we work with to see what they would say, touch base with the GP, like you mentioned. I think it's important to do that so that they're getting the right care from the right people if they need it. Yeah. And I think it, it's an interesting um, concept, I think, with with run, what runners and what what draws people into running in the first place. Because I think there is that element of, and I've, I've found this myself actually recently when I started running. What I really found was the psychological element of pushing yourself through that sort of pa- that, uh, that tiredness barrier and that pain barrier. And I think it's much more for me. It's actually been really psychologically helpful because it's kind of like your kind of battling against yourself in a way where you want to stop you want to kind of give up because you're knackered and you just want to and but then it's like right now i want to you know complete this 10k i want to complete this 5k in a a faster time than i did before i'm you know i'm not going to stop i'm going to keep pushing it and i think that for me has been helpful i think mentally and i don't know what you think glenn in terms of that the type of person also that runs is often not maybe an addictive person but that that person that's maybe quite driven and and that that has those sort of like wants to accomplish those goals and i think mentally that can be quite helpful often as well yeah i mean there's a whole scope of of runners that you see i mean that that uh, more old-fashioned model of a you know young type a personality male uh, I, I think I see such a, a wider scope now you see you know all ages and people are running later in life and and my my view is very similar to yours i think any sort of exercise where um, it's difficult and you're kind of working against a resistance, particularly an internal resistance, because it's only you, you're, in, you're accountable to yourself, aren't you? Essentially when you're out running on your own, um, anything that helps you become a bit more comfortable in an uncomfortable situation um, can be, can have some, um, you know, you can, you can bring that across to other aspects of your life potentially. Um, but I think, you know, Tom's really picked up a key point here that if people are just using the running um, to deal with their, anxiety you know, like from the pt world there's an old adage isn't there? you can't outrun a bad diet um so you could say the same analogy here isn't it? you can't outrun a bad um situation that you're in and and what i'm seeing now is more and more people are getting funneled into running because they're at home gyms are closed sports teams are not training unless you're elite level um so there's less options so more people are choosing it because it's that option their situation is more stressful because we're in the midst of a global pandemic and some people are losing their jobs and maybe worrying about older relatives and stuff so if you do use exercise then there's a there's a maybe a likelihood that you're gonna gonna overuse it you know and um 70 of running injuries are overuse injuries so if people are running more and more to try and deal with the, the you know the mounting pressures of the situation we're all in now um then you're it's logical that you're going to have a higher number of people and they're maybe running, you know, uh, more than they should for their level. And you're going to see a spike in injuries as a result of that as well. So, yeah, I think we, we should acknowledge the benefits. It can be a useful tool, but it's got a relatively high injury rate um, when you compare it to other sports, actually. And most of those injuries are overuse. So if people are, oh, I'm feeling more stressed, I just need to run more there. That's a recipe for, getting an injury quicker isn't it in a way so if, uh, i guess mm. if people if people are you know um using it as a tool but but or want would like to use it as a tool as part of the toolbox and they are you know um 
you know they've sought help for other other aspects of their mental health um are there any sort of specific thing or like kind of guidelines you would give people maybe tom that if they're starting running what are the sorts of guidelines around you know how often should you maybe do it run a week like is there a, is there a general guidance that you you know to reduce their chance of injury because obviously we know if they can be consistent or if people can be consistent with their exercise and sort out those other things that's going to really help their mental health but like glenn just said if you overdo it then that can be you can be injured and that can actually not only can you then not exercise, but that could make you feel even worse. So are there some general rules or guidelines that you tend to give people who are just beginning out and starting? Yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, a lot of people having time on their hands in lockdown have just gone out and absolutely gone for it. And I've worked with quite a few runners who've just not not done any running and then ran every day for a month and then been very sore, uh, which, you know, we, we would imagine can happen. The difficult thing is, is that we want sort of general rules, but there aren't many that will work for each individual. So I think the first point is to, if you are wanting to take up a new sport, think about what your situation is as an individual. So are you someone that is fit and active and healthy, hasn't had many injuries, has done quite a lot of weight during sport? Maybe you've played a bit of football recently, you're used to doing a bit of running uh, as part of that sport. Now, you might find that you can tolerate starting with a somewhat higher distance or frequency. Whereas if you're uh, coming into sport for the first time, perhaps you've never really been that sporty in your life, your general health isn't so good, perhaps you're carrying a little bit more weight than you would, would want to, you've had some previous aches and pains, you know, that's a different situation. So you might be more inclined to start more gradually um, and look at much smaller starting distances. And there is a bit of research in that in um, in novice runners with a high BMI showing that, um, you know, they're probably more likely to develop an injury if they're starting with about 6K per week than they would if they're starting at 3K per week. So if you're really new to the sport, you might want to start out really quite small with a few minutes and supplement it with some, some exercise that you can tolerate better, like swimming or cycling, and then start to build gradually. Um, if you're fit and active and used to doing weight-bearing sport and running, you might start quite a lot higher. I mean, some people will start with 3 or 4K or more and tolerate that quite well. I mean, simple tips that I find quite effective. I tend to say to people, um, start with maybe around about three runs a week. So you can have a rest day between each run. Um, Try not to increase your distance or or speed too quickly. I mean, runners are aware aware of the 10% rule, which says if you you take your total weekly distance, you increase by a maximum of 10% per week. That's okay. It's not evidence-based and it's difficult if you're starting with very small distances because it'll take you forever to get anywhere, but it gives people at least a rough idea of what what they should be looking at. And if you're doubling your mileage or or intensity week on week, that's not going to be sustainable for for very long at all. Um, And then I guess we'll listen to your body. If you're fatigued, you're tight, you're tired, your joints are achy, you're really struggling, then you need to react to that and maybe scale things back a little bit and focus on recovery. Yeah, and I think um, with recovery comes, I think, and again, this maybe links back into, uh, and again, I, I'm not sure on the evidence of this, if I'm being totally honest, but in terms of um, nutrition and how nutrition plays a big role in recovery, but also I think in mental health, I know for a fact that when I when I eat really well in terms of, and when I say well, it doesn't mean I eat perfectly, but like when I eat nu- nutritious food, so plenty of fruits and vegetables, differing colors, like plenty of variety, good levels of protein, um, good levels of good carbohydrates, like your, you know, your, your rices, your potatoes, your sweet potatoes, etc. Um, I feel better. Like you do, I just generally do better, do feel better. I think I remember seeing a, a, le- a lecture online with um, uh, a psychologist who was talking about that, that there is some evidence that if you, if you do feel low that by just by eating something actually make, it actually elevates certain things that make you feel less um, down so i think nu- nutrition and obviously with that is recovery because if we recover well um then you you know you you are going to be you know part of recovery is going to be what you eat so i don't know and oh, glenn i was i was going to say in terms of the um sort of exercise side of things i know you you quite like strength training and things and obviously with some of your runners you do you know you implement that with them is there certain things that you would maybe get people to do alongside the, the running that might help with just kind of injury prevention or for strengthening side of things or how do you think about that yeah so I, i'm a i'm a i'm incredibly biased towards strength training i think i'm fairly open about that so um uh, when i started off um specializing in runners 
Um, I didn't really, I think I've mentioned it on the previous part. I didn't really take any, um, I didn't really give any input into their running program whatsoever, you know, going back over 10 years now. Um, but the reason why I started to um, gravitate towards them and I got more and more runners coming on my list was because I was using really good strength training programs with them. I was looking at how they're moving. I was balancing out their program because I was seeing they were overtraining in certain areas and I was getting good results just by, you know, um, being a little bit more sensible with their training days, their recovery days and incorporating some, some cross training, I suppose, in, in the form of strength training. So yeah, I, I am fairly um, pushy about strength training with my, my runners if they're not doing any. Uh, obviously now there's no access to gym, so we have to be a bit more inventive around it. And um, I, I'm a big believer that strength training is a good addition to most runners um, programs in terms of improving tissue tolerance and even improving performance a lot of the time. So yeah, I, I, um, it's obvious you'd do some lower limb strengthening, easy exercises in it to teach like a squat and a single leg squat and step up and step downs and variations on that. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, you know, um, but build up their base on two legs and then get them to do some single leg loading because running is a single leg activity. Uh, and I think twice a week is, is enough really for most runners. They're not training to be uh, strength athletes if you stop them running altogether for you know you might do because of their presentation certain conditions for example um, then they can strength train more so then they feel like they're still getting some exercise in as well and they can cross train obviously most of the time um, and if they're anything like me like when I when I'm training well um, if I'm if I'm getting you know 12-15 hours a week in exercise then my diet's great I'm sleeping well you know I'm, I'm limiting the alcohol the minute I do get injured and I'm laid up, you know, I start to eat, reach for the burgers and have a few more beers and it's it all kind of cascades, you know, and you see it with athletes of all, all walks of uh, every sport. You know, I see it with a lot of my athletes from, from different um, specialities, but um, you have to be mindful of that. And if you can keep them active, keep them training in some capacity, you might stop the rest of it all coming down around them. Like the, you know, poor sleeping patterns, the poor nutrition, the, you know, maybe um, feeling sorry for themselves and drinking a bit more alcohol and stuff like that. So um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it, it feeds into that as well. You know, Hi guys, I just want to take a quick break to uh, let you know about an amazing resource that Glenn has kindly offered to provide to the podcast. So he runs a running course for physios on how to treat running patients and he's done a really really good video on screening of runners which he uses in his course as part of his running course that he teaches and he's kindly offered that us to as a free resource for any of the listeners of the podcast so if you head over there's a link in the description in the show notes of the podcast so if you just click on that link you'll be taken over to a page where you can just pop in your email address and then you get sent over to the to the video itself get access to the video um, so that you can have a look at that i thoroughly recommend going over there it's a really amazing resource um so yes thank you very much to glenn for that and then let's get back into the podcast yeah, definitely. I think uh, I read a, an article, I think, about um, uh, keystone habits, which is what you're kind of, which is what the article talks about, which is what, what you're talking about there, that a lot of people have a keystone habit that if they do that one thing, everything else seems to sort of fall into place. And obviously everyone's going to be different with that. Um, and so it's interesting to kind of assess people and, to, and ask them about that, because for some people, it may be that you know if they if they get their nutrition sorted, then they train more because they because of that but whereas with you and i think i i'm definitely the same when i'm training better i i eat better because i you know you feel like or i feel like i don't want to waste all that energy i've been putting in in my training and things like that um and then you've not you might be part of sorry go for it chris no no go for it tom i was just gonna say it might be part of the the routine like one of the things i really like about running is the, is the routine i have like i get in afterwards and i nearly always have like a really healthy snack and a smoothie and it just it, you know i think part of eating well is it makes you feel good because you you know you're making positive choices so i think it's nice that example like the keystone habit like the running is what like i do that after a run so those two things are kind of tied together so i think you can kind of tie positive things together like that sometimes yeah definitely um, and you mentioned sleep there as well, Glenn. And I think that again, when we talk, think and talk about the mental health elements, and I think also that's where the running feeds into it a little bit, because obviously with running time, we know that that's often or exercise is going to help with your sleep patterns as well, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it can, can often quite, you know, help people sleep, but there are some things to, to think about with, with so many of these things, they're kind of pros and cons. So on the one hand, a lot of people will find if they exercise during the day, they sleep better at night. But on the other hand, if you're training high volumes and you work a lot and, and, uh, you know, I know people that, that actually work, you know, a couple of jobs and as well as train, you know, sort of 50, 60 miles a week, the time, the thing that you do to, to train is you sacrifice sleep. So you train early in the morning and so you get up earlier and sacrifice sleep or you train late in the evening, which not only means sometimes you're going to bed later, but it can be harder to get to sleep if you've just done a, you know, a tough running session. So I think there's a lot of, you know, positives, but it's just how you kind of plan it in together, really. Um, and I think the more I work with people, the more I realize a lot of this stuff is really interwoven. Um, and, you know, we talked a little bit about the kind of biopsychosocial stuff and how we think. There was a really interesting study last year by um, De Jong et al. that looked at um, two different types of passion with running. So harmonious passion and obsessive passion. So harmonious passion is what we want. It, it's where the person's in control of their activity. So they can, they can choose when to run and when to stop. So running's then in harmony with the rest of their life. It has a positive impact and um, they can stop if they want to. And they have this flexible persistence, which is a really nice term I really like. So yes, you can, you can push yourself, you can drive yourself on when you're tired, you, but you can know when actually you need to alter your expectations of yourself. So it's a bit more flexible, a bit more fluid. Um, and this is actually in the research related to more positive psychological outcomes. Whereas the obsessive passion, the activity of running the sport controls the person and they're going to continue to run even despite negative consequences. So potentially pain, injury or conflict with family and work. And they might actually not be able to stop because they're controlled by running. So these might be those patients you see in clinic where you suggest they change their training and you immediately hit resistance because they're not really in control of the training. The training's in control of them. And that's where you will have rigid persistence. So I will keep going no matter what. And I've seen patients continue to run through stress fractures because they, they, they're not able to stop that, that persistence is, is really rigid. And, you know, this type of uh, obsessive passion, it sometimes can be helpful in a short term. If you've got someone with a high performance goal and needs to compete at a very high level and they just got to get through that, but the long term, it's going to have negative consequences and it's actually associated with an increased likelihood of running injury. So, you know, I think that how we think our relationship with sport, our relationships with our thoughts is really, really important for our mental well-being, but also for our physical well-being. And it's going to have an impact on how we train, how we recover and everything else. Yeah. And, and obviously you, you do courses for physios who are treating runners. So what, what are the sorts of things that you, you know, would talk through on your, on your courses or not even your courses, but just generally if, if a physio was sort of, if you were giving a young physio advice on, on treating runners, I guess, and you had some things that you would be sort of earmark as things to look out for. So obviously that might be one huge thing like that, that obsessive, I'm not, I'm just going to run, I'm going to run through it. Are there other things that you would really sort of um, be standout key points that, that young physios would want to look for with runners? Yeah, I think while we're on this kind of topic, I think I would, you know, if you're working with a runner and you're struggling to to help them change their training, then you need to explore why with them because simply telling someone what to do won't it won't address it. So think about like their thoughts and feelings and external pressures that are actually influencing that training behavior. So you could ask them, you know, why do you train how you train? Um, what do you think about easy sessions? Um, do you, why do you tend to train really hard in every session? Because you can't really help them change their beliefs until you find out what those beliefs are. And it might be then that they'll say, well, I'm not going to get any performance benefit unless I'm pushing myself hundred percent every session, but that's actually not supported by the research. We know that, you know, some studies suggest we can do as, as much as 80% of our training at low intensity and get really good results. Um, so I, I think one of the key things, obviously we talk about in the course, but is to explore why when someone's struggling to change their, their training behavior. Um, and that might come back to their like mental, mental well-being. And I think generally some of the key things I say, if you're looking after runners is, is number one is, is help them understand their injury um, really from the first session. And uh, number two is understand that runner, you know, know why running is important for them as well. Um, number three would be try and make sure the training is at a manageable level 
and progressing sensibly. And number four is use some targeted strength and conditioning to, to, to address any areas that you can get improvements in very much like Glenn would say. And of course you can add loads more to that, you know, get analysis and retraining plyometrics, all sorts of things. But I think if, if they understand their injury, you understand them and the training's at the right level, that's a really good place to start. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, when I was a younger physio and a junior and, and you, you tend to put, well, if I say you, I, I tended to put less emphasis on the subjective and more on the objective. Oh, I need to do these tests. I need to do this special test for this condition or that condition and which, which test should I do? And I think that the older I've got, the more you realize how important that subjective is and how important, like you said, the understanding where that person comes from. Because if you just gloss over their training loads, what, why they're, like you said, why they're doing what they're doing, why, why they choose to do it in the way they're doing it. And I think as well it's quite um important or interesting to to ask those questions in a way where you're really trying to gather the rather than second guess and say oh are you doing this because of that or you know it's really exploring that with the patient and asking them to tell you why they do things rather than sort of using those closed questions and uh, you know uh, and doing it in that way it's a bit like me with my and um, my my type of ocd i have is called is checking ocd so i check uh, check doors, check locks. Um, people, people would laugh if they look at the photos on my phone because there's hundreds of photos of, of like my oven. So I know it's off. You know, that's one of my coping strategies if I've got to go away for a weekend, something like that. But there's a similarity here because you could just say to me, well, just stop checking. Like, you know, that's the kind of sort of lecturer, teacher kind of like, well, just telling someone not to do what to do without really understanding the why. But if you find out about that person's experience and how that's influencing their thoughts, and help them to change that. That's different. So my experiences, unfortunately, about 12 years ago or so, um, I came in from a night out and a couple of guys had broken into uh, the flat that I was living in because my flatmates had gone to bed without locking the door and we'd gone out without checking the door was locked. So they just walked straight in. So I disturbed them burgling our, our house. And unfortunately, I blocked their only exit. So the only way they could get out was, was by basically assaulting me on the way out. So I got quite, quite badly assaulted. It was you know, a really traumatic experience. And the thing that my brain latched onto for that was, if you don't check your front door, someone will get in and they will hurt you. And so that then led to me every night before bed, checking the front door just to make sure and checking the windows and checking other things. And that became a habit. And they say with OCD, the more you check, the more elaborate the checking gets. So just saying, we'll just stop checking. It's not addressing the thought processes that say, look, if I don't check, I'm not safe. And if I don't feel safe, I can't go to bed and I can't relax. So I'm going to check until I feel safe. So that's, again, where, where you hopefully you can see as an example, just going for a run doesn't address that, if you see what I mean. It might help you, but in order to address that, what what I've, what you, know, you have to learn to do is start to change some of those you know, beliefs, start to challenge them, start to actually test what happens when you don't check and you see that nothing happens. You see that no one breaks in and you start to be able to reduce the checking. And it's a similar thing with the runner is almost, you have to understand the motivations, the experiences, the, the underlying reasons behind their behavior in order to change it, I think. Yeah, and that obviously kind of logically, as you tell that story, it seems to make sense why you, you know, it, that it makes logical sense why you would have that response. I wonder like, when you said that i was thinking was there a was there a point at which you started to realize that that was more of an issue because i think in my head i would be thinking well look that's logical to check that after that's happened to to me it's logical that i check the door of course i would check the door because that's what you should do um so at what point did you start to think to yourself okay maybe this is not just a logical thing maybe or or did you did you then seek help or how did that process come about if that makes sense i, th I think i think with with ocd one of the things is it, it tends to grow because you're looking for a feeling of certainty because you need to feel certain that door is locked um, you start to check more and more. And I think that's where I started to realize, okay, and I'm not just going around and quickly checking the doors and going to bed. I'm repeatedly checking the door. And then I'm, I might be getting halfway to bed and thinking, oh, I'll just check one more time. And you no, know, starting to see that leach over into to other checks, like you're starting to check plugs or you're starting to check taps, you're starting to check other things. And that, that's what seems to happen with OCD. 
um, is it grows and the checking becomes more and more elaborate because oddly enough, it, each time you check, what it tends to do is increase your doubt in your own memory. So it can become a bit of a vicious circle and you need to check more to get that same sensation of, of sureness, of certainty. So what they encourage you to do in the stuff I've read around it is, is to try and see if you can stop some of the checks. And what happens is, is you'll get a flurry of very negative thoughts initially, which spike your anxiety. And this is part of the reason why it's important to know how thoughts work with things. So if I don't check the door, there'll be this flurry of, well, someone will break in and they'll, and this and this will happen and your family's in the house and, and it escalates your anxiety. And what you, what you want to try and do ideally is let that anxiety pass. Uh, because it will tend to spike and then gradually go down over time. But what we do naturally as humans is we don't like sitting with that sensation. So we check to try and reduce it. And we check eventually if we check enough, we will reduce it. So it's, it's nearly always easier just to check. Hence why people get trapped in, oh, I'll just check, I'll just check. But actually at some point you need to start to sort of remove that checking process and, and agree with yourself what's, like, what's enough. Like checking the door once is enough. You know, um, you know, we live in a sleepy little place in the middle of nowhere. There aren't people wandering around the back of my house every night trying to open the door, you know, in reality. And I could probably leave it unlocked for months and nothing would happen. Um, so it's kind of trying to draw yourself back to a realistic situation, not a very fearful, very negative, very extreme view of what the world is like. Did you did you get that those insights and help from other people or did you kind of look into it yourself and kind of analyze what you were doing and then and then sort of like you know almost like self-treat you know self-treat if that makes sense um a bit of both i've had lots of counseling over the years which has always been very very helpful so i i really recommend people to you know if you are struggling with your mental well-being it's so useful like you said speak to your gp or, or see if you can work with a counselor because even just having that person there as a, as a source of support can give a great amount of relief and you may not choose to see them lots but how you know seeing them until you feel that you're in control of the situation i think is really good um i've read some good uh, good books on it um as well um you know to ha how you can self-treat anxiety and, and ocd and i think the more i understand it the better uh, but like anyone, situations in, in life will make it harder. Lockdown, you know, tends to make it harder. Very stressful, busy work situations make it harder. So it's knowing to pace yourself and not not take too many too many things on. You yeah. know, don't place yourself in a situation you know you're going to really struggle with. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's difficult sometimes, Glenn. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on this in terms of obviously, yeah, with lockdown, it's been hard. And like you said, you you haven't been able to do your you know jujitsu and whatever else it might be in terms of certain sports that you love doing you love going to the gym etc i'm sure there's loads of other people out there as well who who are the same who have those things and when when do you think you know obviously we're, we're not necessarily mental health experts but when do you think it sort of tips over into needing to seek help rather than i think it's always a difficult one isn't it because sometimes you can not feel great but then it's like how much is not feeling great towards, okay, this really needs to be something I do something about rather than I'm just not feeling great, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult. As you say, we're not, we're not counsellors, are we? So we need to have the network to um, recommend people when we feel it's appropriate. And sometimes, you know, having to close your business, having to stay home, you know, having to try and retrain yourself as a teacher, um, it's a normal response to feel a bit, a bit rubbish about that isn't it you know like it's stressful um there's a lot of fear in general you might have older um, relatives you might have relatives that are at risk so in this current kind of situation it's it's a fairly reasonable response that you're not walking around singing as much as you would normally would be and and um you know perhaps not at your at your best but um i would say it's better to talk to someone and it's not 100 percent necessary than to avoid it and um, try and be strong and fight through it, which tends to be a, 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 you know, a trait of a lot of males, unfortunately, isn't it? And females as well. But um, you're never going to, again, talking about risk reward, what we were talking about with injury and keeping people running. There's not really any risk um, to go and speak to someone, is there? You can speak to your GP, you can often get it through the NHS. The biggest risk you might have is not having access and maybe having to you know, privately fund it. 
um, but there's a there's a very um, definite chance that you'll get some reward. So um, if you're feeling down and it's going on for an extended period of time and you 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 know you feel like it's in, encroaching on your your relationships with your family, your friends, your work, um, your life, then um, I would say seek help early. You know, rather than trying to fight it and and battle through it and and delay. Uh, but I'm not a qualified counselor, but that seems to be a, a, a the best weighing up of risk reward in that instance yeah i think i think it's um what you one thing you said there i I think is a is a real key which is when it starts when you when you feel like it's having a real negative or when it's having a negative impact on relationships and on your relationships around you so if you're if the way you're feeling is starting to negatively impact your work your family life your social life and again it goes back to that biopsychosocial model if it's affecting those things, it, then you can get into this spiral of then going down and down and down because the way you're feeling is then affecting your relationships, which is then making you even worse because you're in that, you just feel, you know, you, you're kind of feeling that feeling of aloneness maybe and and not feeling like you've got that support network. Um, but sometimes obviously it's difficult if someone's really struggling to, um, to support people in those situations sometimes to know what to say what is the right thing to say what is the right thing to do and I think that's why seeking help from initially I would say GP you know go to the GP just because make them aware they can signpost you to those other services because I think thinking about those things and getting the help you need is so vital um, and otherwise you get into those spirals of just going down and down and down which I think you know lockdown I think has brought that out a lot more because people haven't got that ability to be social. You know, some people might not have exercise, but they might have the social side of things, might have friends and family members they can see who really kind of pick them up and make them feel good. But obviously in lockdown, you can't do that. So I think it's really recognizing, like you both said over the whole podcast, kind of recognizing the things that, that you're struggling with, reaching out for help and not feeling afraid to do that and and yes you know we've talked about running as as well in the context of this and running can be a useful tool to help um and we've you know you both have gone through some great tips in terms of trying to be able to do that without getting injured and without stopping doing that but at the same time recognizing that it's something that you, you know is not the only thing you need to do and and that actually often you need to be looking at the whole package and and your whole life and social and um, psychological situation to really get you from feeling not, not very good and feeling down or feeling anxious, depressed, all those sorts of uh, conditions that we can have mental health to then, you know, feeling back on the road to recovery. And I think one final thing for me, and then I'll I'll just get your, your two final thoughts maybe, but I am, I think with mental health as well, the big thing that I perhaps wanted to say was that it's it's not something that you just get over. It's not something that you, you know, it's like a, a you know, my, I've torn my ACL, did my ACL, did the rehabilitation. Now I can do stuff pain-free and there's no issue there. And I think mental health is very different than that in the sense that I know that I'll always have a certain level of anxiety in certain situations, but I can do things that help me manage that and I use strategies to help me manage that and I know I'll do that for the rest of my life and I'm fine with that because it's at a level now that I can really control and it was only at a level where I couldn't control it where I really needed to that help but it's understanding that actually it's okay to feel these feelings if, especially if you've suffered with mental health and it's not something that you're gonna um you know, you are going to have to manage it probably for the long term, but that doesn't mean it has to impact your life in a really negative way because mine doesn't now at all. I, in fact, feel probably better than, than I ever have. So I think if you are struggling, just reach out, but understand that, you know, if you do get periods in the future where you feel the similar feelings or you feel certain feelings, it's okay to feel like that. It's not an abnormal thing. Um, so I don't know if you you guys had any final thoughts. If we come to you, Tom, first, maybe on on just mental health or anything else that you wanted to mention today. Yeah, I think you summed it up really, really nicely there. I think you know, um, don't don't be afraid to reach out for help is a really a really positive message, and you don't feel like you've got to wait till you're really struggling. You know, it's it's okay to to actually just think. You know what? We look after our mental well being. We take lots of steps for that. Why not take a step to look after our, you know, um, our, our mental well-being as well as our physical well-being, you know? Um, and if that involves speaking to someone, that doesn't have to be a big thing, actually, to have a session or two with a counsellor. It's, it's fine. It's not looking different from having a session or two with a physio or a personal trainer. It's just they're angling to help you with your mental well-being, um, whereas probably we're, we're looking a little bit more around physical well-being, although, of course, there's a big overlap. 
And I would say as well, I mean, there's lots of positives here. You know, I think I think some simple changes sometimes, like speaking to the right people, uh, making some lifestyle choices around maybe diet, reducing alcohol consumptions, bringing a bit of exercise, trying to change your thought processes a bit can make a massive, massive difference. And to anybody that's listening to it who really feels kind of in it, like really sort of stuck with their mental well-being at the moment and really struggling, there is light at the end of the tunnel and things can get a lot, lot, lot better. Um, and as you've, you know, very rightly say, you know, it is something that you may find you want to choose to manage through your life. You know, you, you take positive steps for your mental well-being, but it can be really, very effective. And in, in my situation, you know, this Christmas, Christmas Day, for example, was the happiest I've been for a very, very long time. Uh, and it was lovely just to sit there with my, you know, my little family and enjoy it. And so there are positive outcomes from this. It's just a question of taking the right steps to take care of yourself, really. Definitely. Yeah. And you and yourself, Glenn? Yeah, I think you guys have, have again, you've, you've summed all the main points, I would say. I mean, um, one thing that's helped me is, is uh, reflecting on on the positives, actually. So being grateful for certain things, the fact that I, I do have a, a family around me, I'm fortunate enough to be in that situation. Um, you know, I have been able to shift my training and adapt to that. So um, there's a lot of negatives that you can focus on, focus on, on, on the positive aspects as well, which there are some in, in a, you know, in a, a overall a, a bad situation. But um, also just to um, clarify on the, we've said a lot of the time repetitively today, reach out to your GP, you know, but what I'm finding is the GPs are quite inundated at the moment. So in that moment, they might not be able to get through and speak to a GP and persevere there but there are so many helplines now as well that are available you know Samaritans and there's several others maybe we can link those mm. to, the, to the podcast there's about four or five now that um, when you are in that crisis moment if you live alone and you're isolated then there are other alternatives to the GP as well just to speak to someone in that in that moment as well so um, if they're you know I tried to phone the GP yesterday for um, for a, a specific reason, and I was um, I was unable to get through, you know. So um, I'm sure my GP is not unique in that situation right now because they're they're their staff members down there, you know, dealing with an increase in all other issues. So just there are other avenues as well. So I think it'd be useful to point that out and link some of those numbers to the podcast potentially. Yes, yeah. a very good point actually, and I would include the um, Mental Health Foundation website within that because uh, the reason why I ran the marathon for them is because their stuff on there helped me so much. Because there's a lot of um, you know free podcasts, relaxation techniques, thoughts about mindfulness um, that can be so so valuable for people. And I know sometimes people maybe get put off a little bit about you know buy things like relaxation techniques, but I think. From my understanding, the way the way it can help is it helps you change your relationship with your thoughts, like we were coming talking about before, in that it's training you to be able to sit there and see those thoughts just as thoughts that come and go and not get so engaged in them. Because once we get engaged with them, we can ruminate and start to, to go down kind of a bit of a negative spiral. So that to my understanding, those relaxation techniques aren't just to make you feel better in the short term. They can actually help you with your relationship with your thoughts and help you get less caught up in them. So I think, you know, looking at stuff like that's really worthwhile if you know if you haven't done so already. Yeah. And I think um mindfulness, I think we did we kind of we obviously you've talked about it there and we've touched on it in the podcast, but not talked a lot about it. But I think it can be really, really helpful. And I think often um i've always weirdly seen kind of exercise as my form of my uh, mindfulness a lot of the time because i find that my brain just switches off and i think about nothing apart from that exercise when i'm exercising like it just my brain just goes that's why i've always loved sport so i've always been someone that kind of goes you know my mind goes going goes 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 all the time and i think that's again for a lot of people who are like that i think mindfulness can would be great because again a lot of those relaxation techniques are on you know, focusing on your breathing, as you said, allowing thoughts to come in, allowing them to go, not kind of stopping them, but not, but allowing them to just go as well. And again, obviously the apps like your calm, and there's plenty of other apps as well that you can get that do guided meditations, which I really enjoyed when I first started doing them as well, because I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really, I felt a bit weird doing it, but actually with the guided stuff, it just tells you what to do and you can just lie there, spend five minutes, um, five ten minutes you know a day or you know or it doesn't even have to be daily i think that's the other thing sometimes people think that oh i've got to do meditation i've got to do it every day for an hour and it's like no you just five minutes ten minutes whenever you can is going to still be helpful and especially you know if you get used to doing it then you're going to be able to have times when you are feeling 
um, you know, full of thoughts in your mind where you think actually this would be a really useful time to do it. So you start to make those associations with using it at times when you're actually going to help you the most, but you're only going to feel happy to do that if you kind of know what you're doing. Cause often if, if you don't know what you're doing, then you just, you know, you're, you're, you're unsure. So I think those apps are fantastic and will definitely, definitely link, um, you know, mind and we'll link the mental health charities. We'll link Samaritans as well on the podcast. Um, and yeah, I just hope from the podcast that people listening um, have enjoyed it. I think there's been all sorts of different content on the, on the podcast and it's been, uh, you know, an interesting listen and hopefully it's helped people maybe out there that have got some anxieties. Hopefully it's helped them to see that they, they can reach out and should reach out and, and, you know, in all the ways we've said. So yeah, I just want to thank you both very much for being on the podcast. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. It's been it's been really good to, you know, to chat these things through and, you know, really good. Hopefully a lot of people will benefit from it. And I really enjoyed the fact you mentioned mindfulness and stuff, meditation. You can be quite creative with that. Like um, there's a spot on one of my runs in the on the downs near Brighton that's so so lovely that I quite like to stop the run and do about five minutes there of just doing some mindfulness so you can just sort of sit in that environment and really enjoy it and, and absorb it in. And I don't know any science behind it, but I kind of think when you've got all those endorphins whizzing around your brain, taking five minutes out to really absorb your environment can only be a good thing, I think. So, and then there's one other thing you can do with mindfulness, which is my favorite, which is mindful eating. That is good. That's come from, from uh, John Kabat-Zinn talks about that. So that, that can involve really getting, getting into like really properly absorbing and enjoying like food. So get yourself a decent bar of chocolate and do a bit of that. I think that's going to help all of us really. Yeah. My, my wife talked about that the other day and uh, funnily enough, I've got, a, I've got a six and a three-year-old at the moment. And um, it's funny because we often, not even because of mindful eating, but often we were like, we sat there and when my mom, we want my three-year-old to eat something nice we'll be like eating whatever it is, broccoli or whatever. And we'll close our eyes and be like, mm, just close your eyes, Jimmy, just see how good it tastes. Just close your eyes and feel how good it tastes to try and make him do it. But um, yeah, he's still uh, he's still not the best at that, to be fair to I me. I don't know if it works with broccoli. <laughs> you need a big bar of chocolate or some strawberries yeah. or something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. There you go, guys. Awesome podcast with Tom and Glenn there. I really want to thank them both. I think the content on that was a bit original and really, really useful. If you liked it, head over to your normal platforms and leave us a review. It really helps the podcast out. And I will see you on the next one.